Hey, this is Ross Payton with Roleplay Bubble Radio. This is RPPR episode 134, Highfalutin Fantasy. And with me is Caleb. Hello. How do you spell falutin again, Ross? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I was going to Google it. I Right now in my notes, it's F-A-L-U-T-I-N-G. Maybe that's right. Highfalutin. I, yeah. I don't know. I, uh, just, I just wanted you to say it aloud so the fans <laughs> would no doubt make nasty comments about yes, it. Yes, uh, if I misspelled it. Or if I spelled it right, which might be contradictory to the nature, <laughs> the spirit of the word. Because uh, that's very highfalutin. Fancy $3 fantasy. Yes. That's uh, the name of the episode. So, so in this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, fa- adding fantasy to your fantasy games uh, as opposed to just, you know, medieval peasants, uh, you know, simulating, uh, which the Funnel World Adventures in DCC, which I'm fond of, do. But, like, how much fantasy should be in your fantasy game? And while I feel a lot of fantasy games don't have enough and that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, we do have a bit of news first, though. We uh, There are two Base Raider PDF supplements out. Uh, let's see here since our last episode. Uh, Glitched Reality, which is about strange reality-altering powers that uh, seemingly resemble video game powers, but are actually mind-bending, uh, reality-warping artifact powers from the Tunguska Exclusion Zone. So you can die and then reload reality to you know resurrect yourself. Uh, things like that. So that these were like you do, like you do. Uh, these were uh, some NPCs in the Wild Hunt episode. One shot of base raiders use these powers, uh, like co-op. So uh, check that out. Then Exemplar, uh, which is a new villain slash antagonist for your base raiders game. Uh, in the campaign, I threw him in against the entire group uh, in the last session. Yeah, he. Is real powerful. <laughs> yeah, he was a kind of a powerhouse. Yeah, maybe just run. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe just run away. Uh, so he's out. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, the big news though is the Upwind Kickstarter is going on as uh, this uh, episode is being posted. Uh, Upwind is a fantasy RPG uh, written by Jeff Barber, formerly of uh, Blue Planet, and Upwind Hype. Upwind Hype. Uh, yeah, yeah. This episode is sponsored by Biohazard Games. Uh, I'm going to be working. Damn it, I need an air horn on my phone. Yeah, MLG. <laughs> yeah, upwind. <laughs> upwind high. <laughs> so, this, uh, I'm really excited about Upwind. Uh, I have a lot of actual plays for it scheduled, and I hope they reach a stretch goal so that I can be writing for it uh, and adventure for it. So It's a pretty boss system. It's a really fun game. Uh, it's a really fun system. And uh, yeah, so. But thinking, you know, writing adventures for Upwind is really fun because you you can basically go nuts. There's no, I mean, it's a very open ended setting. There are specific, you know, things written in it. It's not anything, um, because you have to have some abstraction between like consistency and realism versus fantasy in any given fantasy genre. But uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited about it. So, um, and finally, I do want to ask, uh, sort of, ask you all who are listening to this podcast. Uh, for feedback, I, I try to remind you guys uh, every once in a while that we want to bring you podcasts that you want to listen to, obviously. So if there's any particular type of podcast you like, you want to see more of or listen more to uh, or less of, please let me know in terms of especially like an actual plays. Do you want to hear more campaigns, more one shots, uh, one shots of new systems, the same systems? Um, we do have a limited budget in terms of time more than anything else of how many games we can record uh so we we try to pick the systems that you think you guys will enjoy listening to uh but and if you do like a particular game that we're that we've posted or an episode you want please comment on the site because that's how the cast members 
uh, the other people who are playing the game see it. Uh, I know a lot of you tweet at me or send message to me through Facebook and that kind of thing. And that's fine. Uh, but if you want to tell me, oh, I like how player, you know, Bill or Caleb did something in a game. I'm like, well, I just posted a comment on the site and they can see it too. So uh, we really appreciate all of you guys who are out there who are fans of it, who spread the word. Uh, without this, this would not be possible, obviously. So. Yeah. yeah, and uh, feedback about the main podcast as well, not the AP stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. was also well, welcome. Like I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about maybe uh, doing a spinoff podcast. Uh, you know, I've been tinkering with ideas like that. Yeah. Uh, additionally, so like any feedback regarding RPPR in general. Yeah. Is appreciated. Uh, yeah, I meant yeah, both podcasts. Um, well, actually, three. Now that we have Tabletop Tales, don't forget about Tabletop Tales, our new campaign focused uh, podcast. Because uh, I'm thinking about changing. I mean, I'm always tinkering with formats. I have an idea of changing the shout outs into a separate mini podcast because I know some of you will go, oh, I can't listen to, you know, 12 hours of podcast a day because that's how much we post. No. Um, and we call you weak. Yeah. Weak. Listen while you sleep. <laughs> listen all the time. Listen in the shower. <laughs> so uh, making like a mini podcast would be like 15, 20 minutes per episode where one or two people like review one thing in detail and just put that on a regular basis. That might be a new Patreon milestone. Uh, I might just do that anyway. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm still thinking about the format. So, uh, but yeah, if there's other types of things you'd like to do, uh, please keep in mind there are some things that we said that we're not going to do. Caleb's never going to play the World of Darkness. Ever! <laughs> uh, there. So just keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, so that uh, with all that news and business out of the way, We've been doing a lot of postmortems lately, so yeah, uh, we we have another one coming up at the end of the month for Dresden Season Files One from Tabletop Tales, and uh, yeah, so we should make it something other than a campaign morgue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's just a, it's sort of coincidence all those campaigns ended around the same time. Yeah, um, but yeah, let's get back into the the let's get to the actual topic at hand, uh, which is you know. I called it epic fantasy at the beginning. That's sort of how I think about it because um, I have been playing a lot of The Witcher 3 and I've been thinking a lot about fantasy because of Upwind. And um, recently I also ran a Dungeon Crawl Classics one-shot, uh, which was called Attack of the Frogs. And it was. And I've also read several other uh, third-party uh, Funnel World adventures or Funnel adventures where you have – you know, we've posted them before where you, know, you have four level zero peasants – Every player does, and you go out and you fight a monster. Most of them die horrible deaths. And um, that's been fun, but it seems a lot of third-party ones have the very, very sort of... They're not taking advantage of fantasy as a genre, where it's always like you're in a small rural village. There's like a couple of monsters out at the edge of the village, and you have to go kill them. And sometimes it can be fun if you add some sort of unusual elements, like Brandon and Red, for example, which you played in, Caleb. You know, there was like a wedding... Uh, there was an interesting curse. The monster at the end, I think, was pretty interesting. You know, the sort of Thing-esque larva hive monster queen thing. Yeah. Uh, but this third-party adventure that I ran, it was just a couple frog people who were trying to pollute the, the lake so that their froggy cult could spread. And it was very, very bare bones. And I was like... The player's like, yeah, we'll just join this cult because we don't want to fight him, you know, and, <laughs> which was fine. But there wasn't much, you know, meat to the bones of this adventure. And I feel like you're not doing fantasy service as a genre if you're running these kind of dungeon crawling, even a dungeon crawling kind of adventure where it's just like 
go to this cave or go to this, you know, dungeon that there's some goblins, there's some pit traps, there's some orcs, and there might be one or two weird monsters, but it's all stuff you've seen before in, you know, video games and board games, and it's very, very, very similar. And I feel like a lot of players, there's there's sort of an inbuilt sort of um, belief that you have to earn your way to the real fantasy in a fantasy RPG. Like, you can't get to... In a D&D game, you can't have an adventure where you go on top of a cloud and fight, you know, sky, you know, storm giants in their cloud castle, unless you're like level 12, at least, because those are level 12 monsters. And you need to have this kind of spell and these kind of abilities. Otherwise, you're just dead. And, you know, it's a tabletop RPG. You're making up everything anyway. So why not have the level, the cloud castle adventure at level one? You know, why, why are you saying you have to earn, you have to spend six months playing the game before you can get to the really cool, memorable parts of the game? Um, and that's sort of where I'm going with this. Uh, or that's, that's my idea. So, yeah. Well, I'm going to, you know, pull a move from the Book of Aaron. <laughs> And disagree with the very premise of the podcast. <laughs> all right. <laughs> right at the outset. So, uh, Let's get but to the shark button. In all seriousness. Uh, so when you brought it up to me, you said epic fantasy. So I'm yeah. like, man, uh, Gilgamesh or something like that? Yeah. And then you were talking about high fantasy. I'm like, all right, we're going to talk about my least favorite genre, but yeah. I'll, fi- I'll figure it out. But as we got here and, you're, and we're talking you through it, um, I think what you're really arguing is about... Um, the placement of fantasy within the fantasy genre. Yeah. Because I think it's a truth that we need to acknowledge that in all of fantasy, it's not entirely fantasy. Yeah. You can't have a um, narrative that people can track if it's complete fantasy. Yeah. Um, So you have to have elements of the real world or the primary world peeking through but the amount of those elements, like their number and their quantity, is the definition between low and high fantasy. Uh, and that's arguable, obviously. But the placement of those fantasy elements is equally vital to running a good game. And if you're going to place those fantasy elements, you need to make sure that we're playing a fantasy game because we want to play fantasy. Not because we want to play a game. There are a dozen different games we could play. We want to do fantasy stuff. And the problem is is that when game elements enter into a fantasy genre, the gameism will interrupt the narrative. So, like, uh, Gilgamesh doesn't have to fucking level up to jump into the sky and, like, punch a magic bull to steal (laughs) its testicles with his best friend, Aduku. He doesn't have to do that to do something that effing crazy. Um, And your characters don't have to either because it's numbers... And those animals and rats and stuff don't exist, and you can describe it however you want. So the grinding element of RPGs and the way that it gates off the most fantastic elements of your setting, um, I think it comes from a good place. It comes from that Skinner box wanting to reward people, uh, reward the behaviors. It comes from wanting to have a sense of climax Mm -hmm. and something like that. But your climax should derive from your characters and their interactions with NPCs, specifically recurring NPCs, such as villains or princesses or family members, that should be your climactic situation or your plot should be climax. Whereas I think in fantasy, a lot of people think like Sky Kingdom or the underwater uh, palace of Neptune, or they think the van art is the climax. 
And I can't see the van art, no matter how well you describe it. So why not you do, if we want van art and you think it's going to reward your players, why don't you just make everything fucking van art? And right. then the climax is when it occurs in the narrative rather than the flavor tasks or the airbrush descriptions coming out of your mouth. So if you're a level one character, there's no reason you have to go into the basement and kill rats. Right. Like you can Unless go there's a narrative reason for it. Yeah. yeah well, make the rats cool at least. Yeah. Like there's no reason you have to start as an exterminator in, in a fantasy narrative. Yeah. Uh, or if you do start as an exterminator in a fantasy narrative, there's no reason being an exterminator can't be effing cool. Like just yeah. completely ridiculous, insane, not so crazy. Um, like so that that is that is uh, something to consider. So like maybe maybe they are rats, but they're leaking through a dimensional portal that was left there from the alchemist that used to own the bar, and they're pouring in from a universe of. Uh, total necrotic death. Uh, so you have to go to the hell dimension where, you know, rats reign supreme right. uh, and, and close a badass portal, uh, even though you're basically just the orchid man. Right. Uh, only instead of laying out poison, you need to, like, stop a necromatic uh, portal to the hell dimension. Like, you can make it something cool and ridiculous and crazy uh, and still have it be appropriate for level one. Yeah. Uh, I mean that's true. Like uh, the 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 Gilgamesh thing uh, you're talking about. That actually, uh, the reason I used epic fantasy is because of a D and D trope, which is the epic hand, epic uh, handbook, which is a third ed supplement, which had for uh, the rules for characters over level twenty. And th- at this point, all like wizards can cast a wish spell, you know, like and so that's like the start. That's like the ground. That's the in, you know the the uh, the ground level for this, and it just goes up from there. So they have, uh, for example, like. Oh, to jump to the moon is a DC 100 check. So, you know, at this point, rolling the D20 doesn't even matter <laughs> because it's just a 20-point swing and you have 100 points in jump anyway. Um, <laughs> and the game, yeah, the game obviously kind of breaks down <laughs> mechanically at that point. But um, so, yeah, and, and I agree. I think that, that that's the thing is that um, a lot of these games don't want to um, reward players with access to the school stuff until they've earned it by playing enough. But, and, and the yeah. thing about that game genre yeah. of epic fantasy is that you're doing the most fantastic things, which if you're really into fantasy is what you got into it. Mm-hmm. But you're doing it for the least amount of time because you don't get to do the most fantastic things until the rules are the most broken. Like uh, you don't get to have your crazy ass moon fight until I can literally wish everything into existence and there's no challenge anymore. Right. Like, and there's no, there's no call for that. Um, it makes sense. Like why that is a common thing, but, uh, that doesn't mean it's a good thing. So I, fantasy's obviously not my favorite genre. (laughs) Um, and I obviously haven't put a ton of work into it, but, um, what this sort of where do you place the fantasy thing reminds me of personally is the uh, Colossus Clock uh, Colossus Archipelago games, the yeah. the Dungeon World games that I run while drunk, um, <laughs> and I just see like I don't keep track of your characters. Like basically every time we've played they played that game, we've remade characters. Yeah, uh, and I don't like tell I don't have plans for like what anybody could do. It's just whenever you go to the direction to describe stuff, and like I put it on a giant corpse. Like and so like in the first episode, you're on the fields of a hand, and then there's like. 
all of these gigantic spiders invading the village from off of a uh, the the giant sky bridge of uh, dead manta ray and like it's just bananas. But it was like a level zero adventure because I just well level one because we were standard dungeon. Yeah, yeah, level yeah level one adventure just because yeah. like I statted I just statted the spiders up as level one spiders. Yeah. Like and so it's badass. You're like defending a town on a dead giant's hand from a horde of invading spiders being egged on by a enemy army. Like it's it's supposed to be wild and crazy and shit. Uh, and then you do that, and eventually you did go into like a cave with a bunch of goblins, but one of them wrote a symphony. And like it was just you know it was bananas like yeah. uh, and and uh, it's harder to tell a serious story that way unless you do the prep work for it. But I have fun running it. I think people have fun playing it because we don't gate it off. Like you're not you yeah. know the dog catcher of <laughs> Fantasy Village yeah, for spend three for five sessions yeah. until like something cool and ridiculous happens. We're playing Dungeon World because we want to do cool, ridiculous things and the numbers are, yeah, just file the serial numbers, just put it on something else. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I mean, that that is um, one, uh, one way to work around it is to reskin things, is to make the orc into, you know, a tentacled chaos monster or whatever. Uh, but I think aside from that kind of stylistic thing is you also have to kind of like approach the idea of like what is fantastical about it and how is that different from reality? You know, as you were mentioning, you have to have that balance of, you know, I wouldn't say realism, quote unquote, but like the pe- the people have to be the characters have to be people in some way that the the players and uh, you know the audience whatever has to be able to recognize as people if they're just abstract pers- you know platonic uh, personifications of things and they talk in a made up language and they're just energy formulas or whatever like that's no one's going to understand well, that's too fantastical but um, you still want so you need to have some sort of something that the players can recognize and uh, fami- be familiar with but on the other hand. It's about how the fantastical interacts with that realistic thing. So I think part of it is even at the beginning, even when they're, the heroes are kind of humble or whatever, is to introduce story elements and plot elements that are uh, very – that would normally be gated off as like a high-level D&D thing but like by themselves. So like um, I think – actually one of the things I'm thinking about is like a, a Eclipse phase. Uh, in that first adventure you ran, Think Before Asking, where we're like starting level one equivalent firewall agents, and then we deal with this potentially existential threat, which is also a very philosophical kind of like deep problem of like how do you deal with this AI? How do you make something so smart? And that would be very easy to reskin as a fantasy adventure where you're dealing with a genie or something like yeah. that. Uh, I mean, it's very, it's actually framed in that, you know, like the Gorgon, uh, right? Or the Medusa, I think it was. Uh, uh, it, was it was the Basilic problem. Yeah, the yeah. Basilic problem. So, like, it was framed as a fantasy problem anyway. And so having player characters deal with that. So, like, uh, you know, all the classic tropes of fantasy or sci-fi, which are, you know, like resurrecting the dead. So, you know, the cost thereof. You could do Pet Cemetery and have that be a very like, especially for Halloween or October, like as, as a fantasy horror thing where like, oh, yeah, bury your dead loved one in that graveyard. But there's a price to pay. Uh, and then that becomes a very that's a lot better than just killing orcs for three hours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. So, like, 
every fantasy thing is a mix of fantasy in the real world. Yeah. I mean, bare minimum, just because you're having to use your real world language to convey the game. Uh, but even if you're not, like, if you're just doing too much fantasy stuff, it gets impossible. It's like, you see a Heffelheim. What's a Heffelheim? It's like a Ketelzix, except it has more Bukus. And it's, and, it's perfectly fromulent. Yeah, it's perfectly fromulent Heffelheims. And, the, you, it, like, if it, and you've, we've all played video games and, like, read novels that go yeah. way too deep up their own ass, <laughs> uh, with the fantasy world building that, it's just completely unrelatable nonsense. Yeah. Uh, so you have to have a mixture. Uh, so I think the reason to hold off the fantasy type and the only time where it's appropriate to close the fantasy tap is if um, you've created a really detailed and complex world that's quite different. Um, but you want to ease people into that and educate them at some point so that you can then expand because you've done this big world building thing. Um, and I think in the best cases when you're just killing rats for the first level, yeah. like that's what they're doing. They're trying to make it relatable. But you should never close that fantasy tap if it's not that hard to understand the world and you're just doing it because you feel like, well, rats would be easier to kill than snake people like people with crazy snake hands like, yeah. <laughs> i don't you don't know that like people with crazy snake hands could be exceptionally easy to kill they don't have opposable thumbs like uh yeah uh they can't put on shirts very easy. yeah yeah exactly um the they hiss all, all little they hiss all the time and are easy to find like uh there's there's no reason that has to be true you can yeah. file the numbers off so um if you're gonna hold the fantasy back do it because you're educating about a setting yeah um um, and I, and we've done that in Eclipse Face. Like you're in a suburban house during your uh, introduction to the fall adventure, yeah. Uh, because Eclipse Face is gonzo nuts, crazy. Uh, and if you just dump right in, dump them right into like the Titanian Commonwealth, yeah. Like it's gonna be. Oh yeah, it's an ad, it's, yeah. Based economy is probably not the easiest transition. Yeah, exactly. And the player used to counting gold pieces in D and D. Yeah, and so so the deep end of that pool might turn people off the game. So. As you educate about the setting and people get more comfortable in it, that would be the reason to ramp up the craziness. It shouldn't be because, like, um, you're worried about them not being leveled for it. Because you're yeah. a GM. You don't have to tell them about that. They don't have to see those gears working. They don't have to see the sausage being made. Just make crazy snake hand people easy to kill and then go nuts with the crazy snake hand fight. Um, another thing to point out and realize when you're talking about the mixture of the mundane and the fantastic is that what aspects of the mundane you choose to leave in determines the tone of your game. So I don't plan Dungeon World Colossus Archipelago, so the tone is wild gonzo nuts because I'm just coming up with crap. There's no need for consistency. Yeah, there's no need for consistency. But if you don't believe like a really high fantasy, high high ass craziness fantasy world can be serious, you think it's all gonzo, like go read the new Crobuzzin trilogy by China Mayville and get back to me because it doesn't get more grim dark and hardcore than those books. But, like, the new Kerbrosen trilogy, like Perdido Street Station and, you know, uh, uh, the Iron Council and all that, like, it is bugfuck insane. Like, and I mean that literally. In the first chapter, a guy is fucking a chick whose head is a giant bug <laughs> who makes her living by vomiting up sculptures that she sells to a man who is a crime boss 
who's his, and he's made of other men and creatures stitched together into Shaw Gothian nonsense until the Birdman comes to get his wings back because he got him clipped by a court for rape until the scientist guy finds psychic dream moths and re- unleashes them. Like, it's just utterly... It's like a drug trip that does it in. It's like you took DMT and started rolling dice, like, if you play that game. But what elements of the real mundane world enter that? Uh, classism. Uh, political oppression. Uh, criminal justice system. Criminal justice system. Yeah. Like, he's he has these corollaries that you can latch onto, and Melville wants to be as fantastic as possible in those books. So they're hard to find, but... Those are the corollaries you use to figure out all these other crazy, wackety-smackety-doo Cronenberg creatures walking around the city. Um, And the tone is very dark and very serious, despite the fact that it's more gonzo nuts than just opening the monster manual and randomly rolling for, uh, uh, this shows up now. Uh, (laughs) Like, uh, So that mixture of your mundane and the fantastic if it's done intentionally before the game starts and you're not drunk and just going off the cuff is how you maintain a tone as well as uh, giving your character some sort of foothold yeah. in which to get into the setting. Um, yeah. And to go back, like for example, upwind uh, <laughs> to go back to the game uh, that's being sponsored. Uh, the, they obviously um, the game is trying to invoke a kind of a, an age of sale sort of aesthetic. Like the idea, you know, you have the, it's a vast, area that the world the 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 setting of up one is in but there are these little point these little islands and uh, surround that are just far away from each other you need sky ships to sail to each other uh to uh, every other island and so uh the kind of cultures that erupt that, that kind of uh begin there are these little nation states uh you don't have the sense of like one massive empire that controls everything that is very common in fantasy games mm-hmm. uh you have instead a lot of broken up kingdoms and a lot of sense of exploration you know there's a lot of stuff they they evoke that there's ruins over here there's the older civilizations and they left stuff behind and we don't and there's a lot of mystery too like so the the game is trying to evoke these kind of um, adventures where you're like exploring and trying to understand what what happened before you, and also just investigating, uh, or not even necessarily investigating, but just uh, what's all over the horizon, and then dealing with that problem, whatever it is. Yeah, uh, and if you're flying through the air in a world in which giant continent-sized land masses don't obey gravity, yeah, like the the idea that like that society would develop a maritime and nautical situation similar to our own is i mean from an evolutionary perspective fucking ridiculous (laughs) but that's not the point the point is that you have that sort of maritime nautical cultural tone from the real world that introduces you to the other stuff in the world and and establishes the tone and the theme of the games like it's not in there because it's realistic it's in there because that's what the game's about. Yeah, and it's giving you a frame of reference. Like, you could run Master and Commander in uh, Upwind very easily, or that those kind of adventures. Uh, or just, uh, you know, Charles Darwin in you know Upwind. Oh, let's go spend a campaign or an adventure where we're figuring out what crazy animals uh, evolved on this island in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, like, whether you're writing the game or you're playing the game or anything like that, the basic principle is that you're only ever writing and talking about the real world. Yeah. There could be corollaries, there could be metaphors, you could be a f- talking fish jaguar person, and you could be saving the kingdom of the 
wind goddess and it, yeah. you're you're talking about a real world human situation because you you're too anthropomorphic you can't right you have that's the only thing you can relate to um so i would argue that like in terms of fantasy placement if it doesn't get in the way of that human element like mm-hmm. that that real world element you want the story to tell make it as bug fuck crazy as possible because that's what we're there for that's the escapism like mm-hmm. if it's not getting in the way of the human story the crux of like exploration you're trying to tell or the story of classism and exploitation that melville's trying to tell then you add in like gonzo crazy shit like yeah. because that's what you're there for uh if it's not directly related to it it's in there or you use the gonzo crazy stuff to heighten the metaphor of the real world thing you're talking about yeah so I think the the main thing is you know a lot of uh, gamers, a lot of people who play uh, tabletop RPGs are really only playing D and D. And when they play D and D, they mean like the generic. I wouldn't say generic, but like the, the sort of archetypal D and D, which is you all meet in a bar, you all get a treasure map, or you're all hired by an old dude in the corner of the bar to go to to do a job, which turns out to be going to a dungeon. Killing thing, killing everything in it, finding something or and bringing it back, or you know, you know, the very basic kind of dungeon crawl thing. Um, and there are a lot of players and GMs out there who are resistant to doing anything but that. But uh, so I think we should talk to these <laughs> people in a sense. Um, like if you're a GM and your players are all like, "We want a dungeon crawl. We want to play this fantasy game. We just want to kill monsters and kick down doors." Uh, how do you? How would you gradually kind of introduce them to? more fantastical things. I mean, like, for example, one thing is even in the level one dungeon, I would add some sort of element that would be, you know, batshit insane that, like, is totally out of character with D&D. You know, make up, like, uh, the the person they have to talk to is the, the insect-headed woman who's a sculptor by vomiting up, you know, things. And, like, they just have to talk to her and get her to make, maybe she needs to make a sculpture for them to fit into a particular alcove to open up the door to the plane of air, you know, or something like that. And so the player, it's no different than, like, oh, we have to go to the shaman and have to do this, you know. It's just, you're just stylizing it. Or it could be... Uh, as much as like um, something more philosophical or something where like oh well if you if you here's this mechanism in the dungeon if you move this gym over here you can go back in time one day are you gonna do you but you can only use it once what are you gonna do with it you know and then so that those are kind of interesting ideas yeah and so like if they're if they're in that your two sort of flavors there yeah um i think it would be much easier to have them stick to the plot structure of we want stuff go kill guy get stuff um i would stick with that if we're like breaking them in but like lose the tokenism like and tolkien tolkienism yeah yeah uh the tolkien-esque stuff because like there is nothing fantastic about a dwarf or an elf anymore like yeah we know how they operate or you're gonna Dwarves flip are all scottish elves are all french uh, <laughs> uh like yeah, or or flip it yeah like oh now my elves are scottish but my dwarves their beards are so well trimmed like uh and that's better i guess but you just ditch the tolkien-esque stuff yeah and it's not because it's bad but like there's nothing fantastic about it anymore it's so troped that it's not a fantasy. Um, so, like, if you just reskin everything with crazy stuff, that's one thing. Once you've done that and you've broken them of the, like, the clear expectations of that genre, if that's what they want, 
Yeah. If you are truly, that's what I was thinking. Kind of if you're truly going for high fantasy, that's when you should like expand the objectives of the game to be more fantastic. So maybe you need to negotiate a peace treaty with a culture that can only speak in proverbs. So maybe you have to like print a bunch of proverbs out and you have to negotiate, but they don't accept original thoughts as having any value unless it's a proverb. Uh, so you have to speak only it's like a fortune cookie. Yeah, you have to speak only in fortune cookie wisdom, <laughs> uh, or you have to pretend that it's a proverb from your culture as you make up some sententious saying. Yeah. Uh, so now you're having like a fantastic, different cultural thing, um, and you can still base that on like like that would be from Ebo culture. Like Ebo yeah. or- oratory is primarily about uh, like. Re- using proverbs to say what you want to say rather than forging some like fierce original thought it's you know mixing these proverbs to have an original thought um so that's this Igbo nigerian stuff so you can pull from other real world cultures to make your fantastic cultures because i mean you're you're going for exoticism but rather than the creepy colonial way you just make it exotic by making crap up so uh if it's too hard for them to relate to and it's too crazy uh that's fine but like just look at other cultures look at other oral traditions uh other fantasy traditions and uh you know make that a a different objective in your game yeah uh rather than just reskinning it um and i think one of the things you know like you're you're talking about that it actually reminded me um, I didn't watch this episode, but I did hear about it, uh, the reference of a Star Trek Next Generation episode where Picard had to negotiate with a culture that had some sort of odd linguistic culture like that, and he had to, like, tell stories to relate things to them. Uh, yeah, so Darmok it's like at, so, so-and-so when the walls fell. I forget. Yeah. It's, it's a nerd it's, reference. It's Darmok, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so basically, what they I'm, only understood language through metaphor to events. That's it. Yeah. So you had to, and to describe your feelings, you had to describe a member of the of the collective yeah. that had had that feeling before. Uh, so to describe like what's happening, you had to form some sort of metaphorical extension. Yeah. Um, well, the, what? Well, my larger point is like start looking at sci-fi for to incorporate the fantasy because Star Trek. Say what you want about it. They're really good about like let's take one con- one fantastical concept and they visit a planet where that's in full effect. Yeah, you know, and fantasy's uh, great for that. Yeah, so like it's really easy to take any of the I think probably almost any Star Trek episode and convert it into fantasy and like, yeah. have a very fantastic because it's the science is nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's basically it's magic. it's not yeah it's not really talking about sci-fi it's not like questioning the fate of humanity increased technology or right. the way technology is going to affect us or right. putting it's not like black mirror or anything <laughs> like that it's black mirror is a documentary <laughs> yeah uh it, episode one season one got it real like, it got it real damn close uh yeah it's not black mirror yeah. uh it's it's it is you know the quantum quetzets is yeah. her and you've again oh we can go back and fight nazis all right yeah and again you've got that nautical theme yeah. and everything which would make no sense because why are they even on a fucking ship when they could teleport like uh but there's a range on teleport uh, until there isn't <laughs> yeah uh yeah the, it's not there for a reason it's there for handhold yeah. so you can get to the more fantastic elements or or like uh embassy town like uh their their whole um 
in that one, uh, the the aliens they speak to can't lie. Yeah. Uh, they can't. They don't know how lies work, and so once they learn how to lie, it becomes intoxicating. It's like a drug to them. They all become heroin addicted to hearing like people speak. Um, but they also don't understand metaphors unless it's a concrete metaphor. So you can't make. So um, the main character in the book is a young girl who uh, whose name to the aliens is she who took what was given who she who ate what was given to her and it's because as a kid she had to eat this real gross thing while all these aliens watched her because they had to have her live out the metaphor so maybe your fantastic mission is not to go steal a bunch of gold maybe you need to become a metaphor for something so that this race of bird people can even like Sapperworth right. even conceive of a concept. Uh, like, yeah, you can, you can do all sorts of like crazy stuff. Uh, but like I said, if you're translating it from our Pathfinder game where we go kill thing, take thing stuff, we buy more things to kill more things. And I get more pluses on my sword. And take stuff. Uh, if, if you're transitioning from that, I would leave that structure yeah. and start reskinning everything outside of the Tolkien box mm-hmm. uh, at, before I started like getting into truly fantastic objectives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, doesn't that, that sound more interesting to like... One thing that a problem a lot of D&D, a lot of fantasy campaigns have is that everyone... It, it, it's... Everyone's very similar to one another. Every culture is very similar. Like, oh, here are the noble elves, and here are the grumpy dwarves, and here's the asshole imperialists, and here here's the the pirate. Here's the pirate town, you know, and stuff like that. But like, um, they aren't really different. Whereas in reality, like, if you go to a radically different culture, you know it right away. You know, like if you see customs you've never seen before, holidays, and obviously the language differences, you're like, holy shit! You know, there's a whole thing called culture shock, which you don't really ever get playing a game and maybe you don't need to inflict that on your players but a little sense of like oh these people you have to go out of your way just to relate to these people or just to be able to you know buy or to to get a a place to sleep for the night you're going to have to like invent a new metaphor for them yeah like that so like that's a more memorable adventure than like that one time where we killed four trolls and Ten orcs, you know, as opposed to one troll and five orcs, you know, which is what we usually do. Yeah, and like, uh, like I said, you're like Ken Height says, uh, you're start with the real world. Yeah, uh, and I will, I will extend on that because you know I'm not as cool as Ken Height. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're I, not hanging out with one of the Decemberists. <laughs> I am not. Did you see that? I, I did not. Uh, there is a there are one of the Decemberists. Decemberists uh, is launching a card game on Kickstarter. I forgot what it's called, but he had a launch party at Chicago last night with like Kenth, Keith Baker and like Kenneth Height was there. So oh like, shit, yeah, man, I didn't know you could get invites to parties as a game designer. Well, yeah, well when uh, I've been escorted for parties <laughs> as a game designer, uh, but I, I, I would say in addition to like start Speaking with the real, fantasy, yeah. I, w- I would say in addition to start with the real world that no matter what you do, you're writing about the real world. Yeah. Um, so like start with real. So I was just listening to the cracked podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, one of the, their writers wrote a book called a brief history of vice. Um, and, uh, he, he says he's a, uh, narco <laughs> narcoologist. So he's talking <laughs> about like different ways people have gotten highs before. And he's talking about this towns in Northern India that during religious festivals, um, everyone gets high, like absolutely everyone. So they put out in massive troughs this mixture of uh, 
milk, cream, and marijuana that are like these giant marijuana milkshakes. They're completely free, and you just like go with a cup and scoop it up, and everyone just gets wasted totally screamingly high all day long and it's like not it's not everyone metaphorically it's like every man woman and child uh gets like crazy screamingly high for this religious ceremony and then never hardly ever again the only people that are like you know 420 snoop dog and every day in india are like uh full-blown like the matted hair never shave gurus guru guys wandering yeah. around uh everyone else is just like no it's the day we all get high and celebrate this religious thing um and so like that's just so insanely different from the u.s culture about that kind of stuff because yeah. the guy's talking about when he went over there to do it um he did go find a drug dealer to get a foster's beer because alcohol was completely illegal, uh, so he had to. He stole. He bought one beer can and had to very surreptitiously drink it. While they're literally like giving children these like marijuana milkshakes, like literally passing them out for free on the street, like the kind of shit you asked your dare officer <laughs> when you had no idea what was going on. It's like, what if someone forces me to? Like, yeah. Um, well, in northern India, yeah. And so that's just like in our world. Like, yeah. that's just like in our world. So, like, maybe your fantasy thing isn't go steal gold. Maybe it was like, they, they stole our religious weed. Or uh, I need to find the bad guy in this town in which everyone I talk to and everyone that can give me a clue is going to be completely wasted. Uh, man, woman, and child. Uh, so I have to get these, you know, completely drugged out people to give me my information. So you've got this mystery in this world. Or or maybe it's that's just the people. Like, maybe you have the hippie uh, corollaries uh, species, and that's just how the frog people talk here. They're all spaced out and don't know what's going on all the time. Oh, you shook that frog's hand? You know his skin's hallucinogenic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. A culture that is entirely hallucinogenic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, no. They're not, they don't get high themselves. They just – you get high by being. That's even better. So – Everyone that's not a frog person is yeah. totally high <laughs> at all points in their society. Yeah. So uh, that that would also be great. Yeah. Oh, and even better, like, and they get suspicious of you if you aren't because the only people who don't get high around them are undead who don't have nervous or, you know, bloodstreams anymore because they're, you know, corpses. So, like, if you don't get high, if you're, you're, you're hunting them. Yeah, yeah, you're hunting them. Yeah, so, like, uh, yeah. Uh, see, there you go. There's a really interesting plot hook. Um, and so, like, society and culture and, like, changing those kind of things are some of the good, best examples. Uh, but, I mean, it can also apply to the standard uh, things to where you can come up with new game mechanics or systems uh, by uh, taking, like, one idea I've had for a while is, like, taking, like, one high-level or a few high-level D&D spells and, like, giving them to level one characters. But that's, like... Their only tool. So, like, <laughs> they can't, they don't use a sword. Like, all they have are, like, uh, let's see here, flesh to stone and mm. then rock to mud. So, like, <laughs> all they can do is turn people into statues or turn statues into mud. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, a couple, or maybe like a few spells like that. Or, like, maybe they can, maybe they can jump really high, but that's it. So, mm -hmm. like, it becomes, uh, so you could do a whole game where it's more like a puzzle thing where, like, I'm thinking things like Portal or uh, other games where, like, you're trying to find creative solutions to problems using very limited but very unusual tools. So instead of, like, you just don't, so, you, you know, sword and spell fireball monsters all day, you're like, 
trying to trick them or overcome them by using physics and your one or two tricks. And uh, and that's a good point because we were talking about like using gating off fantasy as like a leveling yeah. or Skinner box mechanic. And uh, that's interesting. Is like maybe don't make it so they can't do anything cool at first. Maybe make sure they can do something really effing fantastic and cool. Yeah. But they only have that one thing, like limit it in quantity rather than quality. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, um, because one of the problems I, you know, we're not fighting a swarm of owl bears. Yeah. Just the one owl bear this time. Yeah. Uh, but it's still a crazy owl bear. All, you know? all I can do is jump 20 stories high and float down. Like, I don't know how I'm going to kill the owl bear with that. Yeah. And like when you're looking to reskin fantasy stuff, do what Gygax did when he ran out of token esque stuff to copy. Yeah. And like, he, half the fucking monsters in the monster manual are made from like low rent dime store Chinese toys. Like, yeah. Go find some crazy outsider art and be like, oh, no, it's the three-headed Cafalgamooks. <laughs> and I, here's a picture of it. Uh, it's a dread cromulent monster. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, exactly. I, I think, like, one, one of the structural the problems with uh, D&D is that, like, they gate the content by level, but there's, like, 20 or 30 spells per level. And so the number of spells you have access to just keeps growing gr- and growing. And you never get a chance to really understand or try to figure out how to use them to the best effect. By the t- because by the time you're like level 10, you go like, well, I can turn rock into mud. I can turn flesh into stone and then rock into mud. But why would I do that when I can just fireball twice as many times? Yeah. And so it's like um, you lose out a lot of the – like there's some really creative and interesting spells in D&D. But – most of the time, they're never going to get used. And I feel that's kind of a shame. Like, to have all these superpowers, all these weird and cool ideas. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone through, like, the Dungeon Master Guide of any edition and just read through the magic items they have in there. Like, a lot of them could be used as uh, campaign weapons or, can't like, the centerpiece of a campaign. Yeah. Um, like, they have, a, oh, here's a bag of tricks. You just grab it. There's a little fuzzball in the bag. But when you throw it, it turns into an animal. And so you could just throw badgers at people's faces. And that's your, that's your ability is to throw badgers. Badger, badger, badger. Uh, it's very cool. I, I, I do remember reading one actual. Badgeromancer? Badgeromancer. Uh, we, we don't need none. Uh, uh, secret Um I remember there are these, uh, back in third ed, there are these uh, magic items called feather tokens, uh, like Qual's feather tokens. And each one was like a little token that you threw, and it was a one-shot effect. And one just made a tree you just threw it and <laughs> boom there's a tree <laughs> and i was like that's a very cool idea uh because i, re- I remember reading a story like oh we were fighting this dragon and then we- it was kicking our asses so i used some spell to jump up and i threw the feather token down its throat <laughs> <laughs> and so a tree grew out of its stomach and the GM's like all right it's dead you <laughs> yeah. just fucking kill it <laughs> yeah and that's a very fantastical kind of way to end a dragon fight instead of just Oh, I'm finally dealt 400 hit points damage to it. You know what I mean? So another thing about fantasy is that like uh, it's I. So we have we have a a burden from the beginning of the hobby. <laughs> yeah, and it's that the games with the most fantastic genre have the least fantastic combat systems. Like in some ways, Phoenix Command makes sense in that it's so blisteringly complex and stupid because you know war is blistering complex and stupid there's a meta commentary there <laughs> about like society I don't shoot you because i'd have to roll to me yeah, yeah exactly it's more trouble than it's worth yeah. and there's a morality to that sort of like <laughs> meta game but like you look at like 
ancient oral tales or legends and stuff like that. It doesn't get fetishistic about like fighting. Like Tolkien himself is just like he fought the orcs and won. Now let me write eighteen paragraphs about the court at Gondor. Like it's it's not like uh, I faint and get a flanking bonus and sure. then do this and spend eighty minutes. Uh, I mean, honestly... Well, if, I mean, like, Howard had some really vivid descriptions. For it, yeah, Howard did, but, I mean, honestly... Uh, but if you're doing that, uh, I mean, I think if you're playing fantasy and there's violence in it, it you should lean far more towards feng shui mm-hmm. than you do d d It right. needs to be fast. It needs to be narrative. Uh, you need to be describing what you're doing. It needs to be stunty. Uh, and, and it needs, like, multiple ways to get out of it without combat, because you have this trickster archetype. So... Yeah. Uh, prevalent in fantasy narratives yeah yeah my superpower is lying like that's uh that that's good but uh yeah it's just another thing to think about like so when you're talking about keeping it fantastic like even if you're fighting something really fantastic and you're breaking out the grid nap and the minis and every turn takes 80 minutes Oh, that's not escapism, man. Like I'm not feeling high adventure. Some right. here, it's it's not cool. Like you know what I mean? Yeah. No, it, it, that is. I mean, and to be fair, a lot of people. I mean, we could go into the whole history of war games turning into RPGs. And please don't. Uh, I, I said we could. I didn't say we are. <laughs> uh, there are better. There are better people to write that or talk about that anyway than me. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I mean, there are a lot of people who want to play a tactical combat game and use fantasy as the skin for it, you know, instead of fighting, uh, you know, and, you know, the Battle of Hastings over and over again, you're fighting a dragon turtle, you know, or something like that. So, uh, but if you're wondering why people aren't getting into your interesting fantasy setting and they've rolled eight times to miss a fucking goblin. Yeah. That's why, like yeah. you're you're gating off a fantastic element. Like, what happens when we kill these goblins, or what happens when we win this fight, or yeah. how, what happens if my character struggles in this fight versus what I, by telling people they can't do something because the dice said it, or doing these extensive setups, or uh, pixel bitching about your gear. Like, those are all gamest elements that, like saying I can only kill a rat right now and I gotta wait eighty levels to kill a dragon. Uh, is getting in the way of the reason you're doing that genre. Yeah. Um, I mean, even in the, the, the most sort of hardcore combat video games for fantasy, they, they don't limit those. I mean, in Dark Souls, you're fighting giant monsters right from the very beginning, uh, and they don't seem to give a fuck, you know. And uh, so it's, it's an interesting challenge because people do. there are people who want that and there are people who don't. Uh, there are better implementations of it, obviously, Upwind, where it's just do an entire fight and say what you want to happen when you win, and the GM will say what So good. Yeah. So fantastic. Uh, uh, also, it's a, also, it's more uh, relevant to actual fantasy narratives in that yeah. you're like, it's this, this obstacle, and then you overcome the obstacle. Yeah. Like, uh, when the Medusa is coming after you, it's not like he moved to pillar A at hex 18, and then he waited four turns for her to turn her back and move to pillar 17, where he retrieved the mirrored shield. And it's just like he's dealing with it. And well, like you she said, looked fantasy and, isn't your, your genre. There are a ton of people who do want that. I, I get that, but like, if we're. 
if they want that, they're not having a problem, and why are they listening us to talk about this? <laughs> Uh, because there's shit tons of that out there for them. Well, I mean, that's the thing. is like you can introduce... Like, I was just thinking about incrementally improving yeah. it. But, but the uh, more fantastic elements, like Upwind, you're like, yeah. uh, I want to get something reflective and turn that bitch into stone. Right. Got it! Yeah. Next weird-ass thing we're fighting. Like, and that's... Yeah, it's that's the fantastic element of it. It's not uh, persnickety. But, but to be fair to be D20, I have seen... Like, 13th Age... Uh, there are ways to get around that game mechanic wise I think 13th Age does have good solutions for that like the escalation die where you gain additional bonuses to attack just so you can not constantly miss the rat yeah so it's kind of like the Oscar music playing towards you know wrap it up kind of yeah so it's like oh you you get a plus six to hit just don't roll and again like it's fine if you want to do that Uh, the tactical focused uh you know very random very much about limiting what you can do mm. actions in combat um if that's the element of real life you're keeping that's one of the tones you want to spread. oh there you go yeah and that's fine but the problem is is taking the burden of the hobby's inception as a given if the thing you want about fantasy is like, I want to talk to crazy hallucinogenic frogmen and trip balls while I solve a mystery in Frog City. Like, if that's what I'm in it for, and then I got to spend 50 goddamn minutes making sure, like, I've counted all my arrows and, and shit like that. Like, y- you're letting How the... How many rounds is this hallucinogen going to affect? Yeah, you're le- Yeah, like... How many shape I rolled through... Yeah, what's my minus for hallucinogenic frog people gas first? Like, oh, God, no. Like, you're letting the burden... Uh, that the the hobby is carrying from its inception, it. right? Deta- detach from the reason you're playing a fantasy game. Uh, in other words, reexamine everything, including like the very sort of implicate the implied structure of the game that you're playing. So, like, uh, yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, like if if my characters go to Frog City and everyone is like making them trip constantly, I'm probably only gonna like re- change rewarding them for trippy role playing. Yeah. Uh, as a way to like get into their characters subconscious kind of uh, so like as a way to learn more about their characters because they're tripping balls and what do they say uh, or I'm going to describe combat differently like I'll make it clear that you're just fighting a bunch of bandits in an alley but then I'll describe it as like oh he's melting <laughs> uh, good thing your sword is made of love <laughs> and has turned him into pure music. I, I, like I, I definitely want to. I want that has to be the next Dungeon World game you run. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to say. Yeah, and I don't want to say like you. You know, oh, you're at a minus thirty to hit yeah. the standard goblin whose yeah. hair is green now. Like that's stupid. Like yeah. just make it ridiculous because like that's where we're in, we're in hallucinatory frog city. Yeah. Not because I wanted to make you give a minus thirty on all your rolls or something. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Um, so, I, these are again; th- these are just ideas to help for you to run your own games, or to to when you're even as a player, like to help kickstart. Like you know, Thirteenth Age does have mechanics for that to give prompts for it, where like. Uh, like, what is your one unique thing? Like, I'm actually a bird. I was just polymorphed into human form by a wizard, and then I learned how to fight. Or I'm actually a manther, you know. You know, I was a panther turned into a man who became a vampire or something. Uh, something fantastical and absurd, and why would anyone do that ever? Uh, yeah, but so- if you're gating fantasy off, make sure you're doing it so that you can uh, give characters a foothold by talking yeah. about something more mundane. Or, uh, and then don't. 
Like, yeah. uh, unless you're doing it for that explicit reason, uh, there's no reason you can't tweak something in the monster manual to make it both cool to fight and also survivable so yeah. that you can have a sense of climax. And your sense of climax should derive from the characters and their wants and things that frustrate those desires, not from like, oh man, badass rock giants <laughs> like in a metal cover are here. And until then, you're going to be a cow farmer. Like, yeah. uh, don't don't do it. Don't make artificial climax by upping your van art descriptions <laughs> when you could be doing that for the whole game. Uh, and then finally, when you're when you're thinking about tone, like that mixture of mundane and weird. Uh, yeah, what is your game about? Like, what, what what aspects of the real world do you want to comment on, or do you want to focus on? Yeah, when you're a before you establish it, you have to determine which aspects of the mundane you want to keep there, and which aspects you want to make fantastic in a specific way as a metaphor for the mundane, like orking as a way to talk about like tribalism and others and stuff yeah. like that. And then everything else should be as gonzo nuts as you can because it's an es escapist genre. Yeah. So like, you should focus on the things that have to be there to tell this kind of tone and story I want. And then everything else should be absolutely crazy wacko yeah. uh, for whatever you're doing. Yeah. Uh, so just some things to think about. Uh, when we come back, we'll have some shout-outs and maybe an anime. Music that I will choose. Probably not Vaporwave, actually. I try to pick it. Uh, music appropriate for the episode topic. Lies. <laughs> uh, so, well, I usually look at the titles, you know, like when I did the After Hours episode, uh, where we just did about where uh, I reviewed a dark conspiracy adventure, I found a synthwave song called Conspiracy. So I put that in. So, and that's synthwave. It's different from Vaporwave. Uh, <laughs> but, anyways, uh, we have some shout outs. First off, a couple of books I've been reading, I've read. Uh, last couple of months. Uh, first off is a novel called Big Machine. Uh, this was recommended by Greg Stolze as a very unknown armies kind of uh, novel, and it is very accurate. Uh, it's about a guy uh, named Ricky Rice, who is a heroin addict, uh, recovering kind of heroin addict, uh, who is it, recruited by this occult conspiracy, trying to find the secret voices of America, uh, like uh, investigating occult conspiratorial paranormal events um ricky rice is african-american and the novel is very much from his perspective of you know living in a very uh you know disadvantaged position in society um he aside from his you know drug habit well his former drug habit and his criminal background he also has like a bad leg and so like it's interesting to see what life is like from his point of view uh and also the the entire story about this weird uh group that is investigating the occult and how they're involved in a battle with one of their former members uh and uh i really liked it i thought it was very good uh so if you want to get hype for unknown armies and get a sense of what a campaign should look like this is a good way to uh uh get started thinking about it aside from unknown armies itself which you know is still being proofread or edited at this point you've been reading a lot of that though right yes yeah <laughs> Uh, we'll probably be working on that. The preview um, drafts. So. 
Let's see here. Uh, we both watched a movie recently, but you recommended it to me, so you watched it first. Uh, oh, Kill Zone 2. Kill Zone 2. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, this is on Netflix. Um, the original title is like called SPL2. I actually looked it up on Wikipedia, which is like a uh, abbreviation for some uh, Mandarin saying, something about fortune and uh, it's like from uh, Chinese astrology or the zodiac or something. But anyways, Killzone Two it has nothing to do with that. It's a stand. It's it's the second movie, but the first movie has nothing to do with the second movie. Nothing. So <laughs> there's like some focus on organ trafficking, which is a commonality. But yeah. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, do you want to explain? Kind so, of- I, it's it's a great Reese's Pieces. It's got <laughs> the best of both worlds. It has like all and and maybe more. Maybe like condensed down and purified melodrama of '90s, like John Woo, like <laughs> yeah, just absurd coincidence. It's like like uh, Chow Young Fat playing a clarinet on his boathouse would be fucking realistic compared <laughs> to like the absurd sentimental melodrama in this movie. It's so maudlin. It's oh god, it's so maudlin, and it's combined with like. The gritty femur snapping brutality of the raid, like yeah. the violence is horrific in the extreme, uh, and it's so like yeah, it's it's in the heroic bloodshed genre, but it is simultaneously uh, so sentimental, and there is so much bloodshed. It's like it's it's doing the splits on both ends of the spectrum it it wants it, it wants it all yeah. um so the basic premise is a hong kong cop is through no fault of his own kidnapped by the organ traffickers well, he's undercover yeah kidnapped by the organ traffickers that he is investigating um he goes to a thai prison to be organ harvested uh in this thai prison tony ja is a well, guard wait, he's first there because they, the bad guy trafficker needs his brother's heart, and he's like a hostage to get that other guy hostage. Like, hey, when you, I told you about yeah. it, you were said I was spoiling too much. Yeah, okay. You, you told me to shut up because I was right. so excited. This is the initial that. premise, though. This yeah, is like ten minutes. In. Yeah, so he's an Sorry. undercover cop uh, from Hong Kong. He goes to this Thai prison that is run by the organ traffickers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tony Ja is a guard at organ stealing prison. <laughs> Um, his daughter is needs a bone marrow transplant, uh, but the only donor in the world that is capable of giving her a bone marrow transplant is Hong Kong cop, who is going to be organ trafficked for someone else, and they don't know it. So the whole thing is, and the whole thing's like the dramatic irony of this. Like fucking Shakespearean star-crossed <laughs> lover story between this Thai prison guard, star-crossed Ogundoors, star-crossed and like the coincidences are just absurd, <laughs> absurd. The ending, oh you know God. what I'm talking yeah. about with the little girl and uh, the abandoned lot. Yeah, where? What did that even mean? <laughs> where did that even come from? That, that symbolism, man. Oh God, that like symbolism. that fight scene's so good, and yeah. then they keep cutting away for it. To this insanity going on below. <laughs> Maybe she shook hands with a hallucinogenic frog. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's the kind of story. It's kind of story where the morality pet escapes and wanders around a entire industrial city and ends up in an empty lot beneath the skyscraper in which her father is heroically 
cracking the septums of a billion organ trafficking gangsters with his elbows and knees. Like, well, the Hong Kong cop is doing this as, shit as literal classical music plays. Oh, like, yeah. the majority of the soundtrack is <laughs> like, yeah, stringed and string quartet. Like, Moonlight Sonata is unironically in this movie, <laughs> which I love. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I love to see a movie go hard in the paint. And they're going real hard in two directions. Uh, yeah, no, it's great. It's on Netflix. Uh, it kills on two. What kill zone is one word. Has nothing, nothing to do with the video game series. Uh, <laughs> or even a kill zone. Yeah. No, there's a kill zone. I mean, I would say the place where they harvest the organs is the kill zone. I suppose. Yeah. But there's more than one of them. Oh, yeah. That's and true. more than two of them. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, so, or maybe that one hallway uh, where that guy with the knives walked up. Uh, so, or, spoilers, though. Um, <laughs> speaking of killing, uh, I did read the next book in the Laundry series, Nightmare Stacks, uh, from Charles Stross. Uh, this is an interesting uh, novel. It's no, it's no longer from Bob or Moe's, the, the previous protagonist. It's from a uh, – I can't remember the guy's name, but he's one of the vampires. Uh, yeah, the first vampire from Reese's chart. The uh, guy, it wasn't the, the woman. the guy who figures it out? Yeah, it was the nerdy yeah, guy. it's the nerdy guy who figures it yeah. out. Yeah. And it's about his job being in adapting to the laundry. And But what he doesn't know is like Stross is doing this interesting thing where he's taking some fantasy – creature or idea and adapting it to the laundry verse he did it in a novella with equoid uh his lovecraftian take on unicorns which is fucked up he did with vampires uh and now he's doing it with elves uh so it which is actually better than you would think uh i liked it uh i know you you're no longer a fan of the series Um, he also did superheroes too which is i think where you was it the vampires and the superheroes the vampires started jumping the shark okay but it was so boring yeah. I couldn't like even call it jumping the shark because it. Was, I really like. It I, was the most bureaucratic. Of, it was of it was. even the laundry. Book. I really like the ending of the. Um, God, I can't, the Reese's chart. Yeah, it was the Reese's chart. Uh, I really like the ending of it. I, really I, like I, it. I, I did too. Yeah, uh, but the superhero one, where it's just like out in the open, superheroes are real now. Yeah, totally jumps the shark. Like because they can't they can't bureaucracy their way past one for my taste, and then. Uh, they're just making like Mo and Bob fucking unlovable and not like in a tragic way. It's just like idiot plotting all the way throughout. Like, well, if you were a rational human being, this wouldn't be an issue, but you're going to make the dumbest choice possible. And you did. You made the dumbest choice possible. Good job. All right. Well, I guess we can keep having a book now because our characters are fucking idiots. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'll, I might give it a shot, but just because it's a completely new character. But yeah. And the, they bring back the pinky in the brain. Yeah. But the elves... It's not selling me on it. I like. I know, it's I getting kind of gonzo. Uh, well, the the thing is, it can't. The whole. I'm part- talking to the man who ran the Willy Wonka Dirty World yeah, uh, no. Eclipse Phase Adventure. So, like, that's I grew up your, on riffs. I'm. A, I, yeah, I, you grew up on riffs. You've my taste or You've been corrupted. <laughs> yeah, I'm first against the wall in the, in the good taste purchase. <laughs> so the uh, and I've also played World of Darkness more than once. So uh, I, I, yeah. Uh, but the thing about the, the, the laundry verse for me is, um, like, you can't. A lot of people love the first novels. Uh, I hated the Jennifer Warrior. I thought that was the weakest by far of all the novels. The Bond one? Yeah, the Bond one. Yeah, no, it was not good. Uh, but. I really liked the one where he took down the megachurch. 
I really like uh, the first Codex, one. Uh, Atrocity Archives. Uh, Fuller Memorandum was good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but like Reese's chart was eh. Yeah. The, what was well, the last one? The Before that? Yeah. Um, I can't remember. Uh, the superhero one, though. What was that? Oh, it was the. Uh, it wasn't the. It was something. It was a musical term because um, it was about like yeah. an opera. Um, the annihilation score. Yeah, the annihilation score. So the thing about the the laundry verse to me is that like people wanted a lot of people are criticizing now because they want it to be the same as it was when they first read it. They want the atrocity archives uh, basically forever. They want you know Bob the geek. As a spy, as a nerd spy, a nerd occult spy fighting occult threats. And the thing is, the setting itself, it has a built in timeline. Like Case Nightmare Green says, the apocalypse is fucking, the, is well and fucking nigh. And so Strauss is it, it, it basically like, well, I have to progress the plot. Uh, I have to progress the timeline. Look, so. I, I, I get it. Yeah. Uh, here's my argument. Sure. I understand it needs to change and evolve. And if it's legitimately Charles Charles Strauss is like we got to put superheroes in it, yeah. All right, that's that's on you, man. Go for it. I disagree. Mm-hmm. I think you've lost the plot a little bit on the tone, but like that's it. But Charles Strauss writes Accelerando. Charles Strauss writes Rule Thirty Four. He invents the concept of slow money. Like he's got really good ideas. I wonder if he's just not out of ideas in the laundry universe. He's like I don't know elves because like at this point they're paying the bills so he can do his weird transhumanist sci-fi books uh and it went, and i really like them like yeah. they're they're really good and i really like strauss but i i feel like it's like get a laundry book out and then you can write whatever the fuck you want like and then i'm like eh, well that laundry book is reading more and more like a chore because it's it's turning to like i don't know throw a dart at a board yeah uh, so something to think of. Uh, my computer just said I need to restart it. Uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> I will dismiss that claim. Thanks, Windows Ten. Uh, that's been having. Uh, so the I don't know if that that sound came across in the recording or not. But anyways, um, my <laughs> thing. We'll leave it in because we don't edit. I do edit these actually. I don't <laughs> edit the actual plays. So uh, we'll see if that comes in or not. Um, we can. Uh, but. For the laundry verse, uh, I feel I don't think it's perfect. I like it reading it. I mean, it's I think it's entertaining. I don't think it's like because uh, I like to see in his world building his crazy the ideas of how he implements elves in this this particular weird math is science or math is magic kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not. And the other thing, it's is not he, like Dan Brown. It's not like yeah. I'm like you're a bad person for yeah, yeah. liking these books now. <laughs> like, it's no. that, it's not that extreme. It's just I'm not. No, I, I can understand. Shout it out at this point. Uh, the and the other thing is, I think the the thing about the laundry is that he can he doesn't he wants to keep this series somewhat light, and because he doesn't want to go full Lovecraft and like it's grim nihilism, everyone goes mad and dies. You know? See, but with annihilation score, I don't even think he managed that. Yeah, like it's like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Only neither side of the divorce has a legitimate claim, and it's. Then, like, hundreds of people die. <laughs> and then there's also superheroes. Like, yeah. it just, it just. Well, I think, yeah. So, um. It's getting too grab baggy for right. me. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I still liked it, though. But, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, speaking of series, though, uh, you've started watching Luke Cage. Yes. And everyone else should. And I absolutely <laughs> love it. 
Okay. So good. Uh, I, I will. I do have it on my queue. Um, I just finished uh, Killzone 2, so maybe I can uh, put that one. So Luke Cage is wonderful for the same reason Jessica Jones is wonderful, because it is a genre, but it is fully attempting to be relevant. Um, its roots in exploitation are apparent and, like, in there because fuck you they're in there like to the point where it gets cheesy sometimes like <laughs> cheese sometimes the score is just like really a wah pedal <laughs> it's 2016 and they're just like no owning it uh so good um the soundtrack though when it's not doing black exploitation uh service is just amazing like they put charles bradley in it Ooh, I love me some <laughs> Charles Bradley. Uh, just and it's super relevant song choices too. Uh, I like a lot of it, um, and it's it's very interesting because like uh, with a nearly all black cast, uh, it's so great because like there's no tokenism. Like Luke Cage is weirdly conservative, like like cosby talking at a university conservative at times like but it's just like he is not supposed to represent blackness in its entirety and the entire things about how he does not want to represent blackness or harlem in its entirety he just wants to be a guy um and then like they deal with his uh power is really interesting like he's he's an accomplished fighter and at some point they show him doing that but like when he's fighting mooks like the fight scenes are not like crazy badass like daredevil because he doesn't need to be he can literally walk slowly through people because he's like a goddamn steamship like (laughs) like so there are there isn't punching or like kung fu or anything because he's literally just like it's throwing people through walls (laughs) he's just tossing through them and uh they're it's funny it's got humor near the end of it everyone knows he's bulletproof it can't be stopped now so he'll just show up at crimes and people will run away (laughs) and then he will just like destroy the gods or confiscate evidence and walk away <laughs> and it's like just like god damn it luke cage showed fuck like ah and then they're just like pissed off he's like all right are we gonna fight or <laughs> no okay i was like turn guns leave like <laughs> so good um it's like a african-american studies course with the number of literary references like walter mosley ralph ellison like they're talking about the all that kind of stuff. Yeah. oh yeah um Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, they mentioned Kenyanin in in there as a as a his favorite Harlem hero and had a Kenyanin versus Shaft Tarantino esque argument, and I'm just like fuck yes, like it's great, like they're constantly dropping literary and musical references. Uh, I I I love it. Um, we were talking about it with Thad on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Iron Fist has a hard road to hoe because yeah. Daredevil is a, a competent action thriller. Well, it's also got the lawyer procedural stuff in, and it's of, got the lawyer procedural. So, stuff. like, there's an investigation, and yeah, mystery, and so. it's a good stuff. Uh, and Daredevil, at its best, does try and be relevant because it talks about the nature of justice, gentrification, uh, justice from both sides. Because yeah. like he's he has justice in the court system and all the compromises he makes there mm. versus like his fascistic impulses. <laughs> With justice as Daredevil versus Matt Murdock's like persistent Catholicism and the idea of like supernatural or you know spiritual justice and like those conflicting definitions, that's when Daredevil's at its best. And then occasionally it's just about ninjas, but the ninja <laughs> fights are cool, so you you get past it sometimes. Uh, but it's it, it's at least about the nature of justice. It doesn't go. Uh, 
it's not as fearless as Jessica Jones was about like dealing with rape and trauma and like the nightmare that is Kilgrave. Uh, and then it's not as fearless about talking about like blackness and what that means nowadays as Luke Cage is. But Iron Fist is about a white guy who becomes better at kung fu than all the orient all the Orientals. He's you forgot one from. important qualifier. He's a billionaire, billionaire white, white guy, guy that steals kung fu from the Asians. He doesn't steal it. They taught it to him willingly. <laughs> all right, whose writers steal kung fu from <laughs> right. the Asians? That's that's bad. Uh, and that's gonna be that's gonna be rough. Like. Yeah. The only way I could see doing it is you talking about like making a commentary about the one percent, yeah. and like <laughs> born rich and the nightmare of those people, or do it just like straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can make it through that one season, just make all the defenders hate him. <laughs> yeah, which would also be my favorite because my because Murdoch's poor and yeah. blind, so technically disabled, a rape survivor. And a black man on the run from the law has to deal with a blonde-haired, $6 billion pretty boy who learned kung fu like other people learned yoga. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, that would be funny in The Defenders, but you still got to make it through a whole season of, like, oh, poor white boy with his magic hand powers. Yep. Like, and it's it's going to be rough. Like, yeah. he's not going to fit in that team. Uh, uh, yeah, no, th- th- those are good points. Uh, obviously, yeah, uh, Iron Fist was made as a, 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 con- a contemporary to Dar- David Carradine, you know, Kung Fu, basically, uh, back in the 70s. And he's definitely got that legacy hanging over him. Um, I think, yeah, if you do it as more like the um, overheard in the gold Saxman elevator, you know, as the pl- as the bad guys and Danny Rand has to deal with all these assholes, uh, these crazy one percenters, I think that would be interesting. You know, that kind of intrigue dynasty with Kung Fu and assassins maybe might might be a little more interesting and more relevant. Like the reboot of comics, yeah. I'd love to see that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, again, he's there younger. Um, he's there as a child. Like yeah, he's ra- there as he's a child. from birth. Or not um, from birth, but like from... So it's like... So you get some Arrow stuff. Like yeah. he, he doesn't fit in with the 1% because he hasn't been socialized with them, even though he has that money yeah. waiting for him. And then another thing interesting you could do is you could talk about like this sort of 1% th- thing because those early comments, the main original plot line was him fighting Hydra. Yeah. So like you have this massive army conspiracy that is you know very fascistic, very racially pure, quote-unquote... Uh, and very, uh, you know, has a lot of means and money, and they try and bring n- newbie millionaire into the mix, and he yeah. knows crazy kung fu and starts whipping the shit out of a ton of Hydra guys. I, that, I, I mean, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Uh, or if it makes the more magic kind of stuff in the reboot, like the going to another dimension for a kung fu tournament kind of stuff. Yeah. Could be interesting. But if it's just like, oh, poor white boy. Goes down I, to Harlem, dates yeah. Misty Knight to yeah. get authenticity. Uh, I, I, it's going to be. I don't know how it's going to fit. <laughs> Does Misty Knight have a robot arm yet? In, in so far in Luke Cage, no. Okay, no. so no, she is a terrible cop. Okay, like awful. <laughs> All right, like legendarily bad. Um, you know, one thing I did. Uh, there is one one bit of criticism I found that was pretty funny and uh, interesting. There's a Tumblr called Liar Town USA where they do Photoshop parodies of like Netflix summaries and things like that. Yeah, uh, and they did one with a screenshot of Luke Cage in a hallway fighting, and it said Marvel's dour hallway fighter. You know, <laughs> yet another grim protagonist fighting goons in a hallway, walking back and forth, punching for hours at a time. You've watched this before with Daredevil. 
Well, Jessica Jones, you'll love it again now. Uh, so I just hope they do add our hallway fighter in uh, the next uh, season of uh, Luke Cage. Uh, so a few more shout outs. Um, one book I'm reading right now, Last Days of the Inca. I'm almost done with it. Uh, it's a really good history of the last days of the Incan Empire and uh, the conquistadors. Uh, By good, he means well recorded. It's a well written history. Nothing good happens. Oh, no, no. It was genocide. I mean, they killed thousands and thousands. I mean, not counting the smallpox, which you can't blame them intentionally doing that because they didn't understand disease Pro either. Yeah. Always count smallpox. <laughs> Always count smallpox. <laughs> uh, but they did butcher thousands and thousands of the Incans. The Incans actually did rebel for decades, uh, which was fascinating. They, they had the longest running rebellion against uh, the, the European powers. Uh, and they actually figured out how to kill the conquistadors. It was really hard, but like, wait until they get in a ravine and then drop heavy rocks on them. So, uh, <laughs> Yay. Uh, that worked, but not, not well enough. So, um, I'll talk about that more, uh, when I get back from Peru. Cause you know, I'm going on vacation there. Uh, when you're listening to this, probably I'll be there. Uh, yay vacation. Uh, so, um, next up mutant year zero. Uh, this is a role playing game from Mophidius. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic uh, role-playing game. Uh, is that where we rolled Terry? No, that's Mutazoids. Oh, okay. Uh, so Mut- it's, not, it's not a Ken Whitman joint? No, it's a good game, actually. <laughs> uh, it's got a very- Can we start calling it a Ken Whitman joint? <laughs> uh, I don't want... I think if we call say his name one more time, he will appear and defraud us. <laughs> He's like a financial candy man. Uh, I mean, he's fucking pretty persistent. If you say his name three times in a meal, your bank account will disappear. <laughs> pretty much. I mean... That even rhymes. That would... Oh, God. I know my new game. First. <laughs> um, so Mutant Year Zero, um, it's a standard kind of apocalyptic thing. You know, nuclear war or something happens. Uh, you're... you're the, What's interesting, though, is the mechanics. You, you can roll or choose a one random mutation that you have. Well, it's not random if you choose it. Um, but the, the main part of the game is like you have an arc, which is basically your settlement. And every adventure in the game, you're trying to build up your settlement. So it's almost like a tech tree in a civilization type game where, mm. like, you get a workshop. Now you can build guns or you can, you know, uh, you get a power plant. So you can – or you a generator. So now you can have uh, an irrigation system or something like that. So the whole game – is about trying to rebuild civilization and dealing with raiders and uh, making sure not too many of your own people die, <laughs> that kind of thing. So um, it's got a very sort of rules-light system. This, I mean, it's a big, thick book, but a lot of it's about setting, um, where you can generate a character very easily. Um, and uh, we've played one session of it, and I'm, I'm enjoying it so far, so we'll post some actual plays of it. Tom was one running that campaign of it, so we'll see how because that goes. Because you're mutants? Uh, well, there's also a companion book uh, called Gin, Gin Lab Alpha, where uh, animal people are experimented on, and then they get out, and they... they so, there it is. Uh, so you can have the furry side of it as well, or just be a normal mutant person. So, um, yeah. <laughs> the furries. <laughs> yep. Uh, if Ken Whitman dressed as a Ferengi for Halloween, would that be like a next-level costume, or like two on the nose? 
Ah, uh, I think Juana knows. Right. I mean, he would he would do. Remember, he as a con man, he wants to get your money, so he would be the person you'd most trust. He'd be like Spock or you know someone like that. Like you can trust me with your money or whatever. The good thing about yeah. not having to refer to Ken Whitman in the mirror three times or he steals all your money is that he has many aliases, so you can still keep talking about him. <laughs> yeah, uh, which name is the one that will invoke him? The thousand secret names of Ken Whitman. Just keep cycling. Yeah. Uh, Whit Whitman. Yeah. Uh, there we Witty. go. Witty. Witty. Uh, I also want to mention Cthulhu Wars by Kid Height. Uh, I'm wanting to do a full written review for, uh, The Unspeakable Oath whenever the next full, you know, uh, uh, eon, whenever the next issue comes out. Uh, but it's a very good alternate history of like, what if the U.S. military had to deal with Cthulhu and all that Lovecraftian bullshit? So it talks about the raid on Innsmouth, uh, even before then, nuking Cthulhu in the 50s and, uh, fighting, you know, uh, monsters in Afghanistan and that kind of thing. So, uh, great illustrations too. Uh, and oh, you had one, uh, Sword and Scale. Yeah. So, uh, for those who are a fan of my bleakness, uh, I got nothing on Sword of Scale, uh, which is a true crime podcast. It's been out for a while now. It's pretty well established, but it is about the bleakest shit you can ever hear it's like it's the kind of podcast like the episode i listened to yesterday where it's like they only caught 42 of the child pornography ring but it was estimated to be three times as much here's an excerpt from the guy's christian ventriloquist cable access show and they'll just like play the audio from it and like you're just driving in broad daylight and just like getting suspicious of like other people on the road with you like jesus it is uh real bleak uh it's very interesting they go into the case files uh they do stuff like that but like it is like come stare into the abyss with me every week (laughs) why am i not surprised that you're listening to that well i mean yeah. If you want some noir ass Delta Greeny shit, like yeah. throw some tentacles on there and it will be comforting. Okay. Like like oh thank God it's from space. So much better about it's not a glaring <laughs> indictment of our species. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just from it's just from hell. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so much better. Oh, whew, I was really worried there for a little bit. All right. <laughs> I I don't even mind being ripped apart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but it is uh, you know, a lot podcast. of crazy, uh, a lot of crazy, uh, and they'll do historical crime stuff. Like so they talked about uh, Maud Gunn, mm-hmm. like the world's most prolific female serial killer. Yeah. Uh, and like her just putting out ads for like, Got a farm, need a husband to run it with me. It's got a lot of anger. Then just getting suitors from random cities and then murdering them and burying them in the trash pit. Jesus. Ad infinitum. Like, I'm on my 40th husband, and everyone tells, like, that's a little odd, Ma. It's like, oh, what can I say? I'm unlucky. I must be cursed. It's just like, wow. Yeah, it's just utterly crazy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is not for the fate of heart. Like, by the time I got to episode two, I was like, uh, uh, no, uh, like, there are big parts of it I have to fast forward through. Um, but it is, uh, I mean, if you want straight from the tap awfulness, like, it is, it is, like, yeah. it is, it is very well researched too. It's got very high production values. So, I recommend it for the, certain type of freak that writes like horror based on real life stuff nice uh i have a podcast too i started listening to called el chapo trap house 
Which sounds like a musical genre you would like. <laughs> I do like Vapor Trap. Uh, but <laughs> Is El Chapo Trap House not a musical genre? No, it's not. It's a political podcast. I uh, don't believe you. I think you tried to fool me or something. <laughs> well, you'll have to, you'll have to uh, uh, disarm that trap. You have to Is part it. of El Chapo Trap House pretending it's something other than a musical genre and then recording it and then it gets sampled and worked into the next El Trapo Trap House song? <laughs> no. Because that seems as meta hyper-nostalgic as Ross would be into. It would be, but it's not. Uh, Alright, I just want to be on the record as being skeptical of this whole thing. But okay. Talk about your podcast. Uh, they, you can check it out. They talk about politics uh, and news. Uh, they're very funny. Uh, it is a liberal-leaning leaning show, but they're very critical and cynical about things. Um they have been they often talk on bringing people like from vice news and stuff like that they, like they had an episode where they talked about silicon valley uh and like how long has it been on uh just like this year it's like it, it's very new so um so they did an episode that i listened to where they talked uh with this vice news tech editor uh, about like theranos uh and that uh have you heard you've heard of that right i have not oh um elizabeth holmes um she was like one of the youngest billionaires ever and she had the blood testing like miracle uh technology so this isn't ringing a bell at all uh so this is still going on uh like she had this company called theranos uh where she was going to revolutionize blood testing like get a blood test without needles and uh then so she was she had a board of directors that had like harry henry kissinger on it and all this other stuff and all these other El chapo trap house isn't searching it's not showing up I'll, my search on itunes it's it's on there uh maybe you're misspelling you should you should have spoofed it yeah no it's it's a real podcast i will show you <laughs> um and the thing is about the theranos is that basically it's not only they couldn't get it to work. They couldn't get it to work because it would violate the laws of physics. Like, the technology cannot work. <laughs> uh, but she got so much money, she was bre- – like, the company was, was at once listed at $9 billion. Um, and it's only come down this year. Like, she was doing fundraisers for Hillary, Hillary Clinton uh, at, like in January or something like that. Elizabeth Holmes was. Um, so they do an episode talking about that and talking about the uh, Silicon Valley tech culture and how they get involved in politics and it's very entertaining uh it's a very raunchy kind of not safe for work podcast uh because uh their their sense of humor is pretty uh well you'll you'll get it but uh trust me don't listen to this out loud in mixed company um so i i found it they're on patreon too actually and they're they're kicking our asses on patreon (laughs) but yeah um so yeah uh Uh, yeah definitely don't listen to sort of scale in public like, yeah, under any circumstance. Yeah, okay, you know, watch or this. around like a spouse that's yeah. not also at like. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, There's a lot of direct quotes from a lot of very awful people, and uh, unless you hear the attribution or like the follow up, it's going to sound like you're just like <laughs> listening to serial killers talk about how great it is. Jesus, <laughs> yeah, it's bleak. Yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, they do they do stuff like about about like real crimes and like. They'll talk about like the psychopath test, yeah, and so they'll do like theme topics. But yeah. okay, uh, so finally, uh, we should do an anecdote. Um, as you may or may not know, I'm running a base raiders campaign right now. Uh, well, not right now. I'm taking a break, uh, but we've done a bunch of sessions of it so far. And Caleb, your character uh, Trey slash American Pharaoh has been very entertaining. So first off, I want to say I finally succeeded. So what I wanted in the Eclipse Phase Manager 
where I didn't plan and I wasn't the mastermind character and I didn't wrangle everybody. Duality. You're yeah, about and that. I respect it. Like what I've tried to do multiple times before, like in Fortunes of War and Duality, I have finally achieved because I am <laughs> as little of a leader as could possibly be conceived. Uh, and I love it. It's very liberating <laughs> not to have to come up with the plan. Uh, so it's pretty good. So basically... Uh, my character's possessed, and I won't reveal too much of it for when we do it. But um, basically, for the first half of the campaign, anytime Ross offered any kind of fate point for a compel, or anytime I could think of anything else to make trouble and get a fate point, I just said yes. Like, <laughs> no matter what it was, no how horrible he is, I just went to it. And I'd say a lot of the games are dealing with the fallout from American Pharaoh's actions. Yeah. Uh, or at least it's a major component of it. Yeah. So uh, I, I full blown errand. I was closing the errand gap. <laughs> the game became about compensating for me, and it was it was just a great liberating liberating experience. Uh, but later in the game, uh, I became unpossessed, and so I wanted to stop stealing spotlight time because I wanted to simultaneously not be a mastermind and not be too overbearing with my role playing. So my character Trey uh, becomes. Very reluctant to do things with his powers because, you know, that way lies madness. Uh, it never works out like it's supposed to. Uh, to the point where in the last game, you had a, you gave us a dog. Well, like you, you were talking to an NPC who had, you went to their house, you teleported to their house, just showing up. Uh, and to the NPC credits, she was just like, okay, well, I've dealt with superheroes before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but she had a dog. and so, Jefferson. Yes. Which is a great dog name. <laughs> it is. Uh, so we basically ended up taking the dog with us for the remainder of the adventure. Uh, and I kept playing with it. But you tried to get me to compel yeah. something for the dog that might feasibly put it in danger. And yeah. I just said no. I just started burning fate points to protect the dog. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're playing fetch with the dog as you're waiting outside as the other players are checking out the base that's underground. And there's like woods nearby. So I'm like, okay, well, what if he goes in the woods and he doesn't immediately come back? You're like, oh, it's like that's a, you get a fate point for that. It's like, no, okay, we'll spend fate point. Fine, easily. <laughs> yeah. A thousand times yes. Uh, he was literally my morality pet. Yeah. Uh, I, and, I think my other favorite part is when we teleported into the house – Faust was a little off, and we teleported into the garage. Yeah. And so we insisted on teleporting in and out of the house multiple times at the adventure, but only going through the garage. Yeah. Like, well, we have to go to the garage to teleport. And he's like, eh, yeah, no, it's it's just how it works here. <laughs> so you're like, everyone's like sidling around an SUV. It's a two, yeah, yeah. And like knocking over old sports equipment <laughs> to get to an interdimensional portal. Yeah. Our costumes are getting caught on shit. And uh, I, I, I love that. Yeah, no, it's been great. Uh, I think the base series campaign has been a, a lot of the, the charm of it has been like the players bouncing off of each other. I've, I've, there have been times where players have just been arguing and bickering and role playing for like you know a while. Without yeah, there's. I wouldn't call it. Yeah. A plot. Yeah. Uh, it, there's a plot. It's it's there's a plot like Arrested Development has yeah. a plot like it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Family bickering. For, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's the, around that, a different framework that yeah. week. Uh, I wanted a uh, well. Everyone's also been dealing with their personal issues. Yeah. And uh, we were getting resolving that. So we'll see how the second half of the campaign goes. And um, because uh, in terms of the actual plays, Tom has a uh, – we're going to be doing Upwind this month in October. And then in November, uh, Tom has a four-part game uh, of Hickson Draconis, which is a sci-fi game where anthropomorphic animals uh, <gasps> uh, are in space. No. Yes. 
And, uh, of course, we would have more Fallen Flag, more one-shots, and that kind of thing. You don't say. Yeah, but after Hicks under Cronus, we'll start posting Base Raiders. So, uh, Gate 9 is the name of the campaign. For those of you doing the drink whenever Tom does a furry thing, yeah, you're dead now. <laughs> and we'll miss you, but you died heroes. <laughs> died heroes. Because that was a bold drinking game to undertake. <laughs> All right. You shall uh, be missed. You shall be we missed. We shall chisel you uh, into the wall of Memorial Dead. <laughs> so episode 134, highfalutin <laughs> fantasy is in memoriam for all those. <laughs> for all those that died in the Tom drinking game. In the Tom drinking game. So uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Thank you.